Welcome to Soulful Connections. I'm Amanda Solar, host and creator of the podcast and SoulfulLiving.com. This is the place people will connect you to their stories, their journeys, and how they've found meaning in their lives. Join us. Let's connect. Connection. Well, I am so happy that I have you, Kristen Donnelly, here on the podcast. I like to start out by saying, how do I know this person? What is my first impression of this person? So Kristen, my first acknowledgement that Kristen Donnelly was a person in the world <laughs> was when we were at a luncheon and it was a CEO global briefing, I think it was called. And a bunch of CEOs were there and I think I sat with you and mm -hmm. I was like, I like her. You were so yourself. I thought you had this beautiful confidence and it radiated. And I was like immediately captivated by it. Oh, thank you. I remember that it was at... Um... I don't remember the name of the thing, but like we were sitting in a glass room. Like I remember yes. that and like in the back <laughs> corner and I had just, just um, kind of started to like get out in Bucks County and like network and meet people. And, um, but yeah, I remember that. And I remember thinking you were incredibly kind. Oh, thank you. Well, I want to know first and foremost, where does that confidence come from? Where that you were kind of, in my opinion, you seem to be unabashedly yourself. And that's not always the way. So where is that? Where are the roots of that? Well, there's a great Tina Fey joke that was like, I want to thank my parents for raising me with uh, a confidence disproportionate to my looks and abilities. Um, and there's a level at which I, I resonate with that. Um, but I have incredible, I have an incredible family. Um, not only my parents, but my extended family of which we've always been very close with. And then my parents were also very intentional about putting adults in my life that would mentor me and make sure that I always had people to go to who weren't them. And I oh. also grew up in a church environment that was negative for a lot of reasons. Um, but one of the things it gave me was a lot of, um, leadership responsibilities very young and my father also uh essentially raised me to be a ceo from like age nine um and so there's a lot of practice in confidence that comes with that um there's a lot of um you know i i didn't necessarily maybe do a lot of the other stuff that people do in high school. Like I didn't really go to parties. I didn't really do any of that because I already had this really grave sense of social responsibility that was given to me by, by my dad, especially. And this sense of calling that I was here for a specific reason and I better not screw it up. And like, that's a double-edged sword. Like that's a real double-edged sword. And 
and there's a lot of like I'm incredibly hard on myself my inner monologue is um very toxic at times to myself um but what it does outwardly is I know I'm here for a reason and I know because of that and because I've been intentionally cultivating skill sets and ideas since honestly around nine which is the first time mm. when I got grounded I had to write book reports um as my punishment wow and I used to, have to write book reports and then I used to have to memorize long passages of something too so like Shakespeare or the Bible or other poetry um, because punishment had to be productive you again know, beautiful but double-edged sword I am never not productive so like there's some everything that is good in my in life I have found it's very easy to be a double-edged sword mm -hmm. and if you have it out of balance goodness can become toxic really fast yeah well, first of all, hearing you, it always makes me want to start over and redo parenting. <laughs> oh, Lord, please don't do that. <laughs> I can't. But um, and then the double edged sword, that that thing you talk about, that voice in your head and that inability to kind of maybe counter that productivity. How do you handle that? And do you handle that? Do you just accept it or do you try to transform that in any way? Such a great question. Um, and that answer has changed throughout my life. So I'm hitting 40 this year. And so obviously, like once you hit 30, your level of give a craps really, you know, decreases. I spent a lot of my 20s desperately trying to make people like me. Mm. And I mean, like I remember doing laundry for a boy I had a crush on because I thought if I was useful, he would love me. Wow. Um, right. And like that kind of, that kind of self. So I thought that was being, with taking it and using it productively. It wasn't. Um, right. And it wasn't until my late twenties when I moved to Northern Ireland um, to do my PhD, um, which was, I had lived in Northern Ireland before. Like I moved there for my first job out of college. Um, and I spent my five years in my two master's programs, just trying to get back to Belfast um, so I finally did to do my PhD. I moved there in 2011 again. And there was a, an incredible amount of freedom in being somewhere that I wasn't anyone's daughter or anyone's sister or anyone's niece. I was just me. And I didn't have a lot of, I had some existing social connections. I had some friends there. And when at the time, one of my best friends was living there too. But I also had this whole other world where I was going to meet a whole lot of people. And I had this decision of like, who did I want to be? Wow. And what did I want to do? And how did I want to craft this life from the ground up? I was raised in a family business, uh, which I now co-own with my brother. And so there has always been this level of, I carry this name and I carry this reputation and I carry this legacy. None of that meant a damn thing in Belfast. So for me, it felt like the first time in my life, I could really say, who am I going to be? And what pieces of who I am do I want to keep? And what pieces do I want to play with? And so like I, so in a certain way, I got to have my college experience when I was cognitively prepared to like do it well in a certain way. Um, yeah. And so I kept a lot of things. I played with some stuff like. Sure. For sure. Nothing significantly dangerous, but it's where I met my husband. It's where I met my best friend and now business training partner. Um, you know, cause I 
got to learn how to settle into my own skin. Now, the double side of that is that I am, I actually, um, I have a lot of mental health issues that mean that I am not able to ever be doing one thing or sit still. Um, and I'm in the process of, of reevaluating quite a lot of those diagnoses and that medication, because I think I've been mismanaged for a long time. And so, but I'm not, the double-edged sword is that I'm an incredible multitasker, but it also means I can't ever shut it off. So I don't ever just enjoy myself doing anything. Mm, I'm always doing two to three things in my brain at once because I cannot ever be still. Do you meditate? No, that is my question. (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't work. No. And then like, I can't do yoga cause I'm still too often in yoga. So Pilates works for me better. Cause I'm always yeah. generally always in motion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I tried to do yoga and all I did was I could not focus on my body. I just kept thinking about my to-do list. Yeah. Um, so I still do that with Pilates, but it's easier to like tune into my breath because my body's also moving. Yes. Um, and I can do that, but like, yeah, I mean, people ask me all the time, like, how do you do it all? And I'm like, it's a mental health disorder. It's not a skill set. Like, yeah, it's, it's it, like, I don't have kids, pets or plants. I don't have to keep anything alive besides me, <laughs> but I also am genetically and biologically incapable of being still. Yeah. Interesting. You know, that really is interesting because it really is, does illuminate that double-edged sword because there are probably a host of people on the other spectrum who are incapable of movement you know 100 just fascinating and Kristen when you say that you got to Northern Ireland and it you loved it and was it because you were just not in the environment that you were somebody's daughter somebody's sister or was it specific to Northern Ireland Did you just love being away or was there something about Belfast? I mean, it's definitely a both. Like it's definitely, I mean, I think, I think this is the argument for study abroad all the time is that, you know, and whether study, study abroad can be another country, but honestly, in the United States, we're so big, it can be a different state. I went to college in Kentucky and that was the first place I learned that the world looks different and that different doesn't mean bad. Um, and the sto- one of the stories I always tell is that when I grew up in Bucks County, I grew up in Yardley, I graduated from Pensbury. And when I moved to Kentucky, everyone kept talking about the SEC and I couldn't figure out why everyone was so obsessed with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Because up here, college basketball, when I was growing up, wasn't a thing. Like we never talked about it ever. Right. I was growing up in the nineties and it wasn't like Villanova was really good then. Mm -hmm. So I didn't even know which March madness was until I was, until I was 19 and friends with a Kentucky basketball player. So I learned that people went home every weekend. I learned that because even if I think I went to Penn or something that would have never occurred to me, I would have never gone home every weekend. And there were people that picked a college so they could go home every weekend. I learned like how I learned that education systems are different. Kentucky at the time was ranked 49th in the country as to educational attainment and Pennsylvania was ranked eighth. And so I would just like go through the world assuming, well, everybody had a debate class in high school. Everybody got the opportunity to audition for state choir. Every, no, I met lots of people that never got those chances. People that were beautiful singers that had no idea there were state choirs because there was no music program at their school. 
So I learned like that really helped. And I will say my parents instilled that in me growing up that different, different people are different. I can talk about the, the ways that they did that and the ways they were very intentional about that. So there's that element of when you're out of your own environment, you have to learn that different doesn't mean bad because nothing is fully the same. But then mm-hmm. Northern Ireland as a culture fits me really, really well um, because it doesn't allow me to be hyperactive all that often because they as a culture do not value productivity on the same level that America does. Um, they value family and they value tradition and again, double-edged swords. But you know, I got a lot of like, well, we just don't do it that way even more than I did in like Protestant churches, which was insane because I thought they were the the kings of we just don't do things that way no northern ireland's been doing some things the same way since like its inception in 1920 um and i i learned my faith really grew and evolved and changed in in those in that time and in that space um but i really loved that i was forced frequently to sit in pubs for hours where the point was not getting drunk the point was not anything but being with your friends and sharing food and drink and 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 proverbially breaking bread around the table watching sports in a com- in communal environments like i never went to an irish rugby game in person but i saw every single irish rugby game where they played in the six nations in the same pub with the same people at the same table and all of my memories i mean that's a little hyperbolic but like definitely the same pub with the same people um And so many of my really, even when I watch Irish rugby now, I can remember the moment I wasn't that we won the six nations. I wasn't in the stadium, but I was in the pub with these five people that I love so much. And we had a great time. And like, I, we don't do that in America. And like now, like now that my husband and I live here and he's from Northern Ireland, as I said before, um, that's the thing we miss the most is that on a Saturday afternoon, we didn't want to sit around our house we would just take our books, text a couple friends and say, we're going to go sit at woodworkers for a couple hours. Anybody want to join, come on down. And like folks would wander in and we'd get to catch up on their lives or they'd text and be like, sorry, I've got too much on. And it was never, it was never judged. Yeah. In yeah. a way. I miss that it feels a lot. Like, it feels like an episode of Ted Lasso. I'm picturing very yeah like that must be real oh it's totally real I mean the number of like I mean I wrote chapters of my PhD in pubs just did it during the day um and coffee shops and like that kind of very out of your house kind of attitude because houses are small and if you have more than four people in your friend circle most living rooms can't accommodate that and so you go out and there's a difference between going out and going out, out and out, out means you get dressed up and you go dancing out just means you're out. Like there's all these kind of, these kind of things. Um, And also they, some of the things that they're incredibly judgy about as a society don't apply to me. Whereas a lot of the things that they're, that America is very judgy about do apply to me. So like, they're not nearly as judgy about bodies. Like I never get hit on in bars in the United States. I got hit on all the time in the, like in the UK. I mean, I got harassed and that was annoying. Um, But like, I just remember the first time I, somebody like a stranger asked me out on a date and I was like, this doesn't happen to people my size. This doesn't happen to people that look like me. And it did there routinely. And um, the, 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 on television, there were people that looked like me all the time. 
And it was, that's completely different um, over there. And it gets dark earlier. I know that sounds crazy. So yes, like winters does. are quieter. Summers are louder because it it's light until 1030. Yeah. And like the sports rhythms are different and it just forced me to be a different person. And the hardest part was moving back here, trying to fit. I liked who I was there a lot. Wow. And I, yes. I liked that person a lot. I was more balanced and more in control of my life than I felt I was here. Mm-hmm. Um, and fitting that square peg into a round hole was incredibly traumatic. And we can, we talk about re-entry syndrome all the time in, yes. in cultural work. Um, and there are still, John and I talk about it all the time. If we click our heels three times on any given day, we're never sure which home it would take us to. Mm, and I'm home in those places and yes and that like when we go back it doesn't ever feel like we've been gone and how was he being here coming from where he was raised in that culture yeah he, he lived there for yeah the first time he moved to the U.S. he was 24 I think okay. if I'm doing my math right and he lived in Los Angeles for five years because he used to work in video game development um he is most days okay he he doesn't he um is very typical of a lot of northern irish people that grew up during the troubles in that a lot of the emotional baggage of being there isn't triggered here um yes but when uh, like i during covid like there were two nieces born that we didn't meet until they were one and two um his parents are getting older every time we get a text and he can't just get in the car and drive it's hard it's it's really hard he gets there's been some instability in his hometown recently as we talk right now and like i we we got the text that something was really a big event had happened and it was very it was very scary and it was not far from his parents and then i was getting on a plane to leave for a 12-day business trip um and like, that's just part of this life. And if we were doing that, if we were living in Belfast, he just would have gone and gotten and seen his family. Um, but like my brother had surgery when I was over there and it was like, it was like clawing my heart out to not be able to get on a plane and be here. So it's hard. I don't think he misses Northern Ireland mm-hmm. um, the way that I do for sure. He misses pieces of the culture and he misses his family. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked about the fact that your faith grew and developed in Ireland. What role does your faith have in your life, if you don't mind me asking? Not at all. Um, to quote C.S. Lewis, my faith is like the sun. I see everything through it. Um, it is Beautiful. It is the guiding feature of everything I do, every decision I make. Um, every, the way I've structured my life is because of how I believe, um, I, I believe I am on this planet to do good and be better. Um, my, I would on the, on the Christian, the Protestant Christianity spectrum, I would be much more liberal, um, than a lot of people and a lot of folks. Um, I mean, I have a seminary degree and I went, I went, I was a, a religious youth worker for a long time. Um, my PhD is studying uh, Protestant congregations. Like I've been in that professional world for a really long time. Um, and, but personally, 
I mean, people ask me sometimes like why I'm not a preacher. And I'm like, honestly, like there's no church in the planet that would hire me. Like, I just like, there's, I have too many other things. I understand um, that. Yeah. And I would love to be a preacher. I don't know how equipped I am to be a pastor. And those are two very separate yes. skill sets. I was a good, I was a good youth pastor. I wasn't, I was a good youth worker. I wasn't excellent. Um, and, uh, and you know, all of that, but for me, I believe deeply that the, that God wants us to love each other deeply. Um, I believe that Jesus came to earth to teach us how to be human. And that part of being human is speaking justice, doing mercy and walking humbly. I believe that the crucifixion and the resurrection were entirely to teach us that sacrifice, you, you sacrifice yourself for those you love and love always wins. And I see love as an expanding entity, not a contrasting one. And so my job as a human is to be the kingdom of God on earth, which means that I am to be loving and I am to preach justice and I am to fight for, for equity. And I am to, um, be to ensure that voices who are not heard are amplified. I am not to be the voice for the voiceless. That is not my job. My job is to make sure they can be heard. Um, am I good at it every day? Absolutely not. Am I good at it most days? Probably not. But when I get out, if I get out of bed in the morning, it is because I am called that day to love somebody extravagantly. And I do that because of my faith. I love that. Well, I have to say, I think that you are the much younger female version of my father. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the compliment. And he will love this podcast. I'm just, I always love it when I please one of my family members with a podcast. I'm like, yeah, Kristen. Um, you know, it, it brings me to what you're doing now with Abby Research, because there's maybe an element of that desire um, to spread this kind of message. Oh, it is like, yeah. When I talk to my seminary, my seminary colleagues and my friends, I'm like, this is my ministry. I know that sounds crazy, but yeah. this is what I do know at Abbey research. Our entire driving feature is to help people understand each other better. And really what that comes down to is love each other deeper. And like, I always say when I'm on other pods and, and things like that, I'm like, I don't mean love in a Hallmark card way. I mean that love is a verb that knits us together, that love is an active entity that is based in the fact that every human, whether you agree with them or not, whether you think they're immoral or evil or they deny your humanity, they are still a human person. You can choose not to interact with them. You can choose to set boundaries, but you do not get to dehumanize them. You may not understand, you may be confused. Well, that's fantastic. You can learn to ask questions. And we term that all as empathy because as we've done research, my business partner and best friend, Aaron is also a PhD. So we call ourselves the good doctors. So as we nerded out and did research, because what did we do during lockdown? We researched and uh, we just tried to read as many books as possible. She also learned how to cross stitch and made a lot of gin cocktails. Um, and I, uh, wrote a lot of Marvel fan fiction, but what we, what we did primarily was try to think as we looked around, I don't know, it was maybe three weeks into lockdown and we kind of looked at each other. We're like, this isn't going away. And already people were talking about getting back to normal. 
And we just kept looking at each other. We're like, A, normal is a setting on a tumble dryer. It doesn't actually exist. And B, there is never going back. No culture can ever go back because we become something new every day. That's how culture works. We, we invent culture as we live. We deconstruct things as we live. So we can resurrect policies, but they will still be different. It will never be the way you thought it was before. Also, your memory is faulty. So like everyone's memory is faulty. This is what we know about memory. So we started looking at that. And then our experience in Northern Ireland taught us that if you do not acknowledge people's trauma and grief and you just tell them to get over it, it will metastasize into internal and external violence. And so since like three weeks into the pandemic, we were trying to figure out a way to not turn COVID into the troubles. Unfortunately, we have turned COVID into the troubles, um, which is why we see an incredible rise in violence in the United States, especially you and I live near Philadelphia. There's a 600% increase in gun violence in the last three years. Um, you know, it's a real, a real significant issue. And one of the driving factors is because we told everyone that everything was fine. And we didn't provide any communal sanctioned official ways to grieve and process. That's one of the things we didn't do as a society. So we started looking as to like, what's the word that encapsulates that? Like, what do we need to teach people to do to prevent this a little bit on an individual level? And so we started Googling. We realized that the definition of the, of the word empathy, which we always teach people, is about feeling what other people feel. That's not actually in most dictionary definitions. Most just straight dictionary definitions talk about empathy as understanding. So we started to chase that rabbit hole. We're like, well, what does it mean to understand? And here's what we've come to. We know it's impossible to feel what other people feel. A, because a lot of us have mood disorders and we don't know what we feel. B, we don't have enough research on emotions to know that. C, pure emotions only last 90 seconds in our bodies, and then they shift into other things. And D, every single human I have ever met, when someone looks at them and says, I know just how you feel, they would like to throat punch that person. So those four elements tell yeah. me that empathy cannot be about feeling what other people feel. So then we thought about people who identify as empaths, and we're like, okay, but it's not really about feelings. Like the data says that they, they can't, so what do they feel? They feel energies. We absolutely do not deny that people can walk into a room and get a feeling of the energy in the room. First of all, that's a trauma response for a lot of people. And second of all, that is how a lot of, especially introverts are wired. We just don't think that empath is the right word because you may assume that you, you are essentially feeling what you assume someone else is feeling. Right. And what we believe all of society should boil down to is this practice of empathy, which is the consistent intentional decision to choose understanding over assumptions for yourself and other people. And to me, fundamentally, that's part of my faith is yeah. to help people understand each other. Understanding is not agreeing. Understanding is not condoning. Like the example I use all the time in my trainings is Vladimir Putin. I would like to throat punch him and I would like him to be in jail and I would like him to go away forever. However, he's not hard to understand. 
He wants, he, he took the desolation of the Soviet Union. We know this from his advisors and his own writings. He took that as a personal attack. And that man will not rest until the entire world is under Russian control. Cool. Done. I understand your motivations. So every time somebody gets on the news and hand rings is like, why is Putin invading this? This is terrible. The Ukrainians have done nothing. And I'm like, you are missing the point. He will not leave Ukraine. He will sacrifice every single Russian human that he needs to. He does not care about human life. He cares about Russia controlling the world. We need to then make informed decisions based on that. I don't need to agree with him. And then it goes to smaller stuff. Like I understand why for me, for for me, getting a little spicy here on your pod, for me, <laughs> trans women are women. That's it. Done. Right. Done. No questions asked. Trans men are men. Done. Because gender is not entirely, it's not a biological concept entirely. It's a social construct as well. Also, it is none of my damn business. What whose geni- what genitalia you have how you right. use it. I don't care. My life, my life, my driving thing is for do no harm and then do you. You are not hurting yourself or other people. Amazing. No trans person has been arrested for assaulting a child in a bathroom. Like all of this is made up hysteria on hypotheticals. Mm-hmm. So I understand though why so many women are afraid of trans women. Why do you think that is? It's pretty, it's actually pretty simple. Um, We as women have a, for those of us who have been biologically, we were assigned female at birth and we have biological genitalia that matches what women, what society says women are. We have been objectified and abused and maligned by men our whole lives. And this idea that somebody who had the privilege of male genitalia and male power now says I'm one of you on one level is deeply just offensive. Like it's the same attitude of you have, you have to suffer because I suffered to like interns. Like we abuse interns. Mm, they had yeah. To that's a big prevailing thought with everything. Yeah. yeah so same mm-hmm. energy. Like I suffered. So you yeah. have to suffer. You haven't yes. earned your stripes. Also for women who are survivors of sexual assault, it is very difficult to imagine being in a room where you are told you are safe with women. And one of those women lived a lot of their lives with male privilege. Yeah. I I understand both of those viewpoints. I even agree with elements of the second one. We are not able to currently have calm conversations about this matter because it is so tied to emotions. Yeah. And so tied to words like evil and wrong and denying people's humanity and all that kind of other nonsense. But there is a third way that we will need to get to as a society to acknowledge that there are women who need to be with us women who were assigned female at birth exclusively to talk about their sexual violence experiences or their other traumas. It just is. But we cannot call those single sex spaces Mm -hmm. in the way that they're currently being talked about. So I don't agree at all with the at all with the I suffered. So you suffered mindset. Mm -hmm. And then I should say there's a third set of people that are just scared by anything that is different and they don't understand. Thousand percent. Yeah. So there's a lot of that happening, too. Yeah. 
society has always had people who are transgender. I mean, like back from like oh, Adam yeah. and Eve. Yeah. Um, and we we it's always been a thing. It's just been a thing that has different values in different societies at different mm-hmm. times. And as Americans, God love us, we tend to believe that the world as it is right now, morality especially, is how people have always felt and behaved. Yeah. When really our morality is a combination of Puritans and Victorianism shoved together with capitalism and made into this weird civic religion of you are only a good person if you work really hard and please never talk about sex because it's dirty. Right. Like it's this weird, weird combination of things. We are the only ones who feel the way we feel about everything we feel. We are definitely the only people at this point in history that think the way we think because we are the only ones who have lived through everything we lived through. I say all the time about the constitution, like here are three things Thomas Jefferson did not have ready access to. Penicillin, electricity, and running water. AK-47s is also on that list. Right. So they didn't write any of our laws with the thoughts that like penicillin existed. (laughs) Right. And like, oh, y'all, yeah. penicillin's been around since the 20s. So, like, we just assume that this is how everything works. But if you really yeah. investigate, what did they think the world looked like? How do I understand the past? You then can understand the present, possibly. Understanding people's contexts is very important. Aaron and I have a series on YouTube called Colonizers World Tour where we go around the world via YouTube um, and talk about a different country every you know, couple weeks, every couple months um, and explain its history of colonization and how that affects the people living there and how we should then as, as the colonizing country, if you are a white American um, or a white Brit or you know, a white Dutch um, person, we should understand our relationships with that. And so much of that is about asking, what don't we know? I'm going to have to put a link in the podcast. I, I totally want to follow that. Um, so, so Kristen, the proverbial magic wand question, given all of that, if I just right this minute through our little Zoom connection, handed you a magic wand and said, quickly, you can change one thing in the world about people. Or about the world in which you live, what would it be? Difference is not scary. It's an opportunity. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, consider giving it a great rating and following all the things you do when you like a podcast. Thank you to William Aronson for writing, producing, recording the Soulful Connections theme song. And once again, thank you for listening. I hope you keep tuning in.